Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Scholarly Communication is an open and ongoing conversation about how communication does knowledge. The premise of the podcast is this. Communicating is not a transferring, as if knowledge might be vacuum-sealed and delivered totally conserved brain-to-brain. No. The premise of the podcast is that research communication is a place and time where people meet to represent and to recreate the things they claim to know. Communication is meaning, as knowledge is too. And meaning is not something we send or receive. It's something we make. I'm your host, Daniel Shea. I invite you to listen to authors and reviewers, to editors and executives, as well as to scholars of communication and professionals in communication, all talking about how it is that the written word makes known the real world. My guest today is Miranda Vinay, editor at Nature, that is both locum associate editor for electronics, photonics, devices, 2D materials, and applied physics, as well as full-time editor at Communications Engineering. Miranda's background is in physical chemistry. She has research experience in high-temperature superconducting electronics, in prototypical nanotube-based gas sensors, and also in edible oils as release agents for industrial-scale baking. She began her career as a professional editor in 2022. So let's begin today's episode, Miranda Vinay on scholarly communication. Hi, Miranda. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So you have a background, obviously, in research, as very many um, nature editors do, as very many um, scholarly journals have in their editor um, staff. And the first question that always comes to my mind, and to very many other people's minds, I think, is what motivated the switch for you to move from a focus on research over to a focus on editing? So for me, I worked, so during my PhD, I worked a lot in um, a very multidisciplinary space. So with physicists and chemists and electrical engineers and material scientists and mechanical engineers. And during this time, I found myself just naturally helping my fellow students with their research papers. And it turned out that after spending so much time uh, helping my co-students with their research papers, especially across different fields, and having an interest, a very broad interest in a bunch of different fields and being able to understand what the paper was doing. It was a very natural transition to go from scientific research to editing from that standpoint. That's really fascinating because that just sort of syncs up so well with what I've heard from so many editors who've gone over from research into editing that they like... that multidisciplinary space, that that broad interest that they can tap into. They, they're just keenly interested on uh, so many different subjects where in the research you tend to dig in deep. Um, does, does that sort of describe you as well? Yes, absolutely. I think that there's a couple of key skills to being an editor and one of them is definitely curiosity. But curiosity in a in the same but also a little bit different than being a researcher because as you say like being very niche very focused very um into the details and as a editor you also need to understand the details of a paper but your interests have to be curious beyond just your niche 
And I think the other key skill to being or the key personality trait of being an editor is wanting to help people. Because that's that's what we do. You know, we help researchers, we help bring the paper to the best possible form that it can be in. And of course, we facilitate the pipeline to being, you know, a manuscript to final publication. I do want to follow that pipeline a bit, but before we get into that, I'm interested in these comments that you're making about the personality of an editor, the the skill set of an editor, because in my line of work, as my listeners will know, I, I also help uh, researchers uh, publish. I'm not an editor, but um, I work in a particular institute and, and help them from, from manuscript through to submission. And these traits that you're describing here, uh, curiosity and, and willingness to help, I would say match up with the way I would view myself. And it's interesting to hear that. It's also interesting because one of the points of, let's say, criticism or where things that I'm doing are viewed critically are often coming from the background of, well, this person isn't from that exact area of research, from that focus in the research. How is it that they can help with the text? I wonder what you might answer then as somebody who's, you know, stepped out of the research now to that that mindset, that mentality that people might have. Well, I think that the, so the way that I would answer this question is I would say, yes, of course, but being in the niche of research is not my job. Just like communication is not a scientist's job, or at least it's not trained in the same way or to the caliber that I'm sure me and you might agree that it would be helpful to be trained at. That's a great answer. I'm going to have to take that one forward. Um, it, speaking, though, about actually communicating and, and so on, as, as you say, scientists aren't rigorously trained necessarily in that end, in the written word, let's say. They're, they're trained in their research activity skills, and they're trained, obviously, in their subject matter background. Um, but, but as you say, and, and again, this is what very many editors I've spoken to have, have repeated, you early on actually seem to have generated some sort of affinity towards text. You were happy to be helping also other people writing their papers, as you say. Uh, can you talk a little bit more to that uh, view as a scientist yourself toward text that was somehow different maybe from your peers? So I think I just, I, I like people. I think that's another fundamental skill of being an editor and also probably a podcast host. And I think for me, I don't know if this answers your question uh, directly, but helping my peers with their research papers was also just a way to engage more deeply with my peers. Um, so it's a very human uh, pursuit, I find. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, this this theme of of helping and and connecting in a way is 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 then definitely central. That, that, that perhaps leads nicely then into this pipeline question that we were uh, just broaching upon towards the beginning. Uh, there's a lot of people involved. And this is something that I also try to bring forward in this podcast of how much interpersonal relating goes on in science. And I think if you maybe gave us a broad overview as the pipeline of submission all the way to acceptance, if a paper is so lucky, I think that might also bring out that element of these different personalities, these different people with these different uh, aims involved. Sure. Yeah. So it the the first thing about uh, about this is that it will change between journal to journal, but generally, very very generally, broadly speaking, whenever you as the author, the scientist, submit a paper, it will immediately go to the chief editor of the journal who then assigns it to one of the associate or senior editors, you know, their employees, based on the editor's expertise, you know, who is most well-suited and knowledgeable in this field who can handle this piece of work. Then, if it goes out for peer review at this point, the editor makes a first decision, which is whether or not to send the manuscript out for peer review. And if it goes out for peer review, then it gets seen by the peer reviewers. And if it doesn't go out for peer review, you know, uh, everybody I think is familiar with rejections. So once it goes out for peer review, there is, this is a process. So there can be multiple rounds to this process, but at its baseness, the peer reviewers look at the manuscript, they have their technical comments. They might say, they check to make sure that the 
data leads to the same conclusions that the authors present the conclusions to be first and foremost, make sure that their statistical tests are done robustly and correctly. And then these comments are returned to the editors and the editors look at the peer review comments and they look at, and they decide whether or not to um, offer the authors the chance to revise their manuscript. And now if the authors do revise their manuscript, then we can go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until the peer reviewers have said all the technical details are good. You know, the paper is technically sound, it is scientific. And then the editors can say, okay, now we can accept this paper. So through this process, at the very minimum, you do have the authors who are interacting, you have the chief editor interacting, you have associate editors or senior editors, if the journal company that you're submitting to has those, and then you have your peer reviewers, and that is just the baseline process. Now, specifically at the Nature Portfolio and the Nature family of journals, if the editors particularly like your work, we might also bring in our press contacts and do a press release, and these would interface with people with like the New York Times, et cetera. Um, at Nature specifically, you also have to go through our copy editing, which will help get your text into the most readable shape, and our art editors, who will take your figures and put them into our Nature style. And then in addition, we have our news and news team, our research briefings, the people who run our Twitter account, so all of these people are going to, at some point, interact with your paper before final publication, and sometimes even after final publication. And I think that you yourself are situated in the associate uh, senior editor category. Um, is that right? Yes. Okay. At present, right. I'm an associate editor. Yeah. And that means that you yourself are already looking outward toward the chief editor outward towards peer reviewers. And of course, in the background or perhaps in the center of attention are always the authors. So if I am understanding this or viewing this correctly, you would very much see yourself as, as dealing in very many different directions with uh, very many different parties there. Of course, absolutely. Um, I guess maybe a, a metaphor that I could use would, would to say something like, it is my job as the handling editor of your manuscript to hold your manuscript's hand as it journeys through this process. This is why we encourage people to talk to their editor. Your editor is always there to answer your questions. And your editor is the one who has the final decision. So it's not the peer reviewers. It is not any of the external people. You know, your editor is the owner of this process. This is essential information, I would say. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is definitely something an author needs to know. So from that perspective, from your role as the handling editor, what would be, well, let's start off, I suppose, basically, what would be some do's and don'ts from an author side? Um, as uh, my listeners will know, one of the main objects of this this uh, podcast is to be helping people who are new to the process, early career researchers in particular, understand better the entire publication process. So, I mean, you're in a position to give them a, a bit of an initial guideline as to what works and doesn't work then in that uh, relationship. Well, absolutely. So first and foremost is taking the time to prepare your manuscript. Because I think, as I can remember from my days as a PhD student and a researcher, uh, after we collect our data and we've done all the work to do the analysis, writing the actual manuscript is a bit of an afterthought. You know, your grant deadlines are coming up soon. Your PI is pressuring you. You just have to get this out as soon as possible. And then once it's off your desk, you can move on to the next thing and then deal with it in revision. I don't encourage this, but I do know that this is the reality of a lot of the way that research is written and communicated. So I think the number one tip would be to take a step back before writing, before you ever write anything down and plan what you're going to write. And the number one tip for planning what you're going to write is to think about your audience. Because whenever you are writing primary research, your audience is very specific. You are only writing for experts. You know, you're writing for your handling editor. You know, that's the people like me who's going to take you through the process. 
you're writing predominantly for the scientific community who this manuscript is written for and who will eventually read it and build on it and contribute to the you know scientific knowledge of the world and you are also writing for your peer reviewers who are a part of the scientific community but who are going to take a slightly different uh, look at your manuscript than your final readers will and so whenever you know that you are writing for these experts um, the prose that you use and the organization that you take even in your paragraphs and when presenting your data is going to change because instead of telling a story you simply want to make what you've done as clear as possible and note the implications of that you know, you never want somebody to walk away from your paper asking, why should I care? That's a really good point. I think that last one, <laughs> why should I care? Because the problem that I note when I'm helping scientists write is that they care so much anyway. It's almost like the materials in their research is just fascinating because but it, the paper isn't going to be able to convey that. And sometimes even they themselves have trouble conveying that, even in speaking, let's say. So I think that is, does that sound like one of those major hurdles to get? I mean, obviously understanding that you need to show other people that they should care is one thing, but but then also figuring out what is it about this subject that just fascinates me? Yes, of course, because whenever we talk about uh, what what fascinates us, you know, our internal motivations are maybe not the most logical or are maybe not the most translatable to other people. Maybe it doesn't hit home in the same way. And that's okay, because what motivates us and why we do our work does not, does not have to be the same reason why your work is important. Um, so... Uh, for example, um, I uh, know a lot of researchers who work in crystallography and crystal discovery. And for my friends and my colleagues who work in this area, you know, they really love crystal structures and finding new ways to click atoms together and build these things. But if you ask why their work is important, they're going to say, well, because we don't have the material library necessary to build the things that we want to build, you know, things like photovoltaics or things like uh, harder materials or things like good electrical conductors. And so we need to do material discovery to get to the next degree of material library rather than just put clapping atoms together. And I mean, that's the application end, which is always, yes, very interesting. But I mean, even if you move along that spectrum a little bit closer to the basic and and make it so that your quite particular research focus in crystallography, let's take up your example, also appeals to a number of other focuses that are around yours so that you perhaps make it apparent, hey, this also has a contribution to your research in this particular way even though that might not be your personal particular motivation, as you were just suggesting. Yes, of course. Um, so I think that as you get to the more fundamental side of research, I think that the motivation tends to get broader. So instead of having a specific application, such as harder materials or photovoltaics, you know, if you understand the a new principle of chemical bonding or, um, you know, anion-cation interactions, this sort of thing, you don't know what it's going to be used for. And that's okay because it has potential energy, right? So it can be for anything. We just don't know what that is yet. Is that is that a harder message to formulate? Because, I mean, with harder materials out there in the world and building X, Y, and Z, uh, you know, that's also very concrete. But when you're dealing with uh, some of these basic theoretical findings, um, is there a way through it to build a message that that, that you know of? <laughs> well, I have to preface this with that I am the Applied Sciences and Engineering Editor for Nature and Communications Engineering. So I think my research background lends my uh 
lends my answer a certain way because I've always worked in applied research. But uh, for fundamental sciences, um, I personally do find it more difficult. I think that there are people who are out there who are better than me at, uh, at this particular thing. But I do think that a good starting point is trying to figure out what you would tell your parents, especially if they don't have a scientific background. So basically trying to get it so that it's it, its interest, its value is just apparent to almost anyone then really in that case, yeah. Exactly. So something that we do in news, which is slightly different is, of course I work in, a, in applied physics, um, which we often get complaints from our physics editors that, oh, a lot of the uh, research that we do is much harder to make interesting for the general public than something like stem cell research or something that's more on the you know, forefront human scale. And what the writing advice that I have gotten in the past, which I think is, is very good, is if you're trying to talk to a general audience, try to put it into the human side. Like, what does this do for humans? What does this do for humanity? What do humans learn, even, is a good, is a good access to, to think about. Um, and what does this knowledge uh, do for us? You know, if we understand chemical bonding better, then we can, at the very least, become better chemists. Which is always a good thing for sure, right? <laughs> right. And I think I hope so anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, I'd like to circle back a little bit to something that you you said um, as your initial answer there on, okay, well, what would be some do's and don'ts out there for people who are dealing with their handling editor? You said taking the time to prepare the manuscript, which obviously from the one perspective does seem so obvious, but then you gave us that wonderful inside view of, well, what a real researcher's life is like and all the pressures upon them and, and how hard it can be to do that at times. Um, I, I, I wonder though, if it's not possible to get out the message because I think so many people are, are realizing, okay, well, the publication matters a lot. It matters to my career and it also matters for the research itself it gives its its value it is the record of science if you like i wonder if it's possible to get out the message there of well imagine the opposite what if you took the time with your experiments let's say that you generally took take with your writing and your manuscript you know almost like a scare tactic if you like i'm sorry i don't quite understand <laughs> Okay, good. <laughs> I I do drift <laughs> off at times. I'm sorry. I, I no. I I mean, um, basically, yes. Very many scientists are quick on the writing. They write it up and they get it out there, and mm -hmm. they're not that way clearly though with their research activity, right? With the bringing in the results, the way the experiment was designed, and so on. They wouldn't have anything to write if they were right. I mean, generally the results just would be unconvincing. And, 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 and it was my mm -hmm. suggestion, well, just to bring in the right perspective, what if you did the opposite? What if you spent as an afterthought the time on all of the experiments, study design and research activity and really focused in on the paper? What would, what would that be like, right? I mean, obviously it's, it's not viable. You can't do it that way, but just to show how important actually the writing is. Yeah, so I think that uh, maybe there's a difference in approach for this type of thing because I feel like at least whenever I'm a scientist, whenever I whenever I was an active researcher, and with the other researchers that I am very lucky to to know, is that the motivation to do your experiments is really core. It's driving curiosity, and it's you know you feel like your work is contributing to the world. And I think that there should be a shift in perspective to, to make it so that your paper is also a contribution to the world in the same way. As you said, it's the, it's the scientific record. Um, and so with that in mind, a, some, some tips, I guess, to get started is to think about how you would weight your text. 
because if there is the amount of words that you spend on a particular subject is the more you have the more important that subject is so if you spend let's say a thousand words on your introduction and only 500 words on your results then your results really aren't the focus of the paper and similarly if you have many results um, in a lot of different aspects the more time you spend on one result is going to highlight this result rather in especially if the time that you spend on other results is less and that's not to say that everything should be weighted equally but it should but it should be a guideline for be mindful about what you think is the important part of your paper and allocate your space accordingly that's yeah that's very good advice i mean to really understand the functions in text yeah that for instance the frequency of certain words or the space that a certain set of words take up already are serving the function of passing on message before you've even overlaid it with any sort of what very many people call a narrative yes exactly and especially because some journals have really strict space constraints for example uh, for us at, at nature we print the magazine and that you know, fortunately or unfortunately, does limit the amount of text that we can actually put into every single paper because, you know, printing is expensive and uh, requires a lot of material. Yeah, definitely. I mean, these, these are obviously also some of the physical or, or literal constraints that are upon the text. But one of the bigger constraints, I would say, is also the reader's attention. I mean, you just circle back again, brought up the idea of audience. Let that be, in a sense, your guide as, as the writer of your research. And I mean, to get back to this picture of the harried researcher, right, moving along quickly through their day, we all know that the reading that's done is done quickly. It's done with purpose. It's, is this useful? Is this not useful? So there's a reason also to be writing that for that reader, isn't there? Well, of course. I mean... Uh, whenever I give talks with the uh, to, to students and professors, one of the first things that I ask them is, how do you read a research paper? And if they're nervous and just getting into the talk, you know, some people will say, oh, well, I start with the title and then the abstract, and then I read the last paragraph of the introduction. And then I ask them, okay, yeah, that's a great answer. I hope that everybody does that. But how many of you just look at the figures and every single person raises their hand in the room so you know that whenever you are presenting something to the scientific community you know your figures are going to be sometimes the only part in your figure captions i should say are going to be the only part of your paper that a fellow researcher might read unless they're really getting into the details I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. There's been an idea that I've been exploring here on this podcast, which uh, looking to my community of scholars of communication is surprisingly apparently new. And it's this idea of scientific reading or being a scientific reader. And you're speaking just to that sort of category of reader. I mean, basically the idea is that we need to recognize that different types of text create different audiences for them, right? The the audience for a novel or a newspaper article is not the audience for a nature paper or another research journal's papers. And of course, nobody just looks at the figures of a uh, newspaper article. 
Right. It's not like we go into newspapers to look at the pictures, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, but but scientists do. Um, in fact, in biology, I know that very many uh, papers will begin at figures. They'll just sort of be lined up and they'll figure out in the air what's the story and then they'll start writing. So, I mean, even on the writer's end, but I'm I'm focusing here particularly on the on the reader's end and, and you yourself, Miranda, as a a professional scientific reader, I would actually label you as. I mean, you're an editor, right? You you must read tons. <laughs> T- tell us something about your um, reading experience in these texts. Tell us something about what it is that you see, what's going on in your mind, where you move to, when, for what, and so on. So I think as an editor, I do several reads of the paper before making a decision. But the way that I read the paper changes between every time that I read it so I can maybe I can give you a little bit of window into my particular process this is not the same for every editor but I can't work without two monitors and so on one monitor I have one uh, tab open with the scientific paper and on the other monitor I have a tab open with the same scientific paper so what I do on my first read of the paper is on one of the monitors I will scroll down to the references and on the monitor that I'm reading from as the authors make claims I will go into the references and just pull up those references that way I have them handy for whenever I assess the paper later to see where it's coming from. So my first read of the paper I am reading the thing top to bottom uh, and pulling out the references. My second read of the paper is where I really tried to get a gauge of what was done. So for this second read, I tend to focus more on the abstract and on the last paragraph of the introduction. My favorite paragraph ever in an introduction says, in this paper, we. And it's three, maybe four sentences specifically on what the paper achieves, particularly in relation to the previous work. That is my absolute favorite thing to read in every paper. Makes my job super easy. Love it. Thank you, uh, scientists, for including that in your work. And then uh, once I figure out what the paper does, I then have to figure out how the paper supports this. So, for example, in, in my field of electronics, you know, oftentimes uh, people do electrical characterizations you know, for their electronics. And I look to see if the electrical characterizations that they have done more or less match what other people have been doing you know are they running the same kinds of tests you know if you're doing your current voltage measurements or etc 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 you know if there's something obviously missing that's not that's not there you know maybe i can pick that out Uh, what i am not looking for in the results is whether or not the results are true or if, and I'm not also not looking for whether or not all the characterizations are there. Because if there's a key characterization missing, if I like the claims of the paper that I've already extracted, I'm going to send it out for peer review. And the peer reviewers can, you know, they are the technical experts who can tell, who can much, much, much better say what experiments are missing and what needs to be run. And so as I continue to read the paper on my third and final read of the paper, uh, once I've generally gotten what experiments have been done and I've generally gotten the claims of the paper, I then look for how these claims compare to the literature. So have these claims been made before? If it's a performance-based thing, as I said, I work in applied physics and electronics and engineering. So performance is often something I'm looking for. Is it the same as other performance in the field? And if it is the same, is it via a different mechanism? And or is it better? And by how much better? And is the fact that the performance is better meaningful? Like, have we enabled a new capability or have we solved a bottleneck that this performance can, you know, unlock something? So I realized that I haven't quite mentioned the conclusion paragraph yet, and I probably should. I'm sure a lot of readers are uh, curious about that. 
So I do read the conclusion paragraph in the second read. So in the same read where I read the abstract and the last paragraph, the introduction, then the conclusion paragraph is also included in that read. But I will say that if the conclusion is done particularly well, it should mirror that last paragraph of the introduction. What I noticed while, you, and, and thank you for that, that, that detailed view as to how you read. What I noticed while listening is that your three passes through a manuscript are somewhat a mirror image as to how we could imagine very many researchers actually compose their manuscript to start with. So the third pass being the check through the literature. That is very often also where a project even begins and where you know initial results are vetted from a researcher's perspective, whether or not this actually has any value. The view to the abstract, the last paragraph, and also the conclusion, as you just said there, would be, let's say, the essence of the paper. You know, what do we have and what's our message on top of it? And then pass number one would be, well, okay, well, let's put this thing together. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And uh, also, I find that the way that I view or that I read a manuscript is exactly the inverse of how the scientific community reads a manuscript. Because I think you'll notice in my entire, uh, you know, spiel about how I read, not once did I mention the figures. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> so, so what um how how might you characterize having had so much experience together with researchers and being one yourself how might you characterize then that scientific readers um approach i know this is at a distance it's not firsthand necessarily anymore but um how might you describe how that is done i think it depends on the expertise and the level that that you are as a researcher because as an early career researcher I can remember spending a lot of time agonizing over a review article or a perspective and just trying to extract the details of every single research paper as I'm finding my footing in the field. And then as you develop as a scientist and become more of an expert in your field, you already know a lot of the high level overviews. So a lot of the buildup in the introduction is not really as relevant to you anymore. You know, as a, high, as a high level researcher, I was much more interested in how did they get this method to work and does the data do what I expect it to do? And can I uh, reproduce this? Yeah, that's, that's also a perspective that I've heard uh, PIs and supervisors um, who, who I often also have on the program talk about when they have the researchers who are in their groups that you know, they take a, a terribly long time getting through the list of papers that they might have handed them a few weeks ago. And then in discussion, maybe at a meeting that they're having, a research meeting, um, the PI, him or herself, is able to quickly just say, well, obviously, they're able to prove this. And very often, the, the early career researcher kind of, you know, opens their eyes wide and realizes oh, that was the core of the paper. That was really what it was all about. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think your descriptions of different readers is definitely spot on. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the challenges of scientific writing, because thankfully, we don't have to write science for everyone when we write a manuscript. I think that's a very, very difficult task. But you do have varying levels of expertise, even in a singular subdiscipline. And that is the balance that you're trying to strike with the different aspects of your paper between the introduction and the conclusion and the abstracts and the results, figures, discussions, limitations, that sort of thing. Yeah, this is something I'd also like to explore a little bit because what you say there is true. I mean, you, you have a small audience for most research papers and you know that they know what's going on, right? So there's a lot that can be built upon, but but there's at least two different complicating factors I can imagine there. You have a large base of researchers who are out there who are in this early career transition period. I mean, this is very many researchers who are doing themselves also important work. So I think it would probably be remiss not to try to include them in the way that you maybe involve 
background or the way you write your introduction and so on. And then the second one, just to be brief, is the other segment of the uh, audience who may not be precisely in your focus, but are close enough that your results can be useful for them. So you've got to get them up to speed as well. Right. I, I, I agree. I don't have, I think you said it beautifully. <laughs> okay, well then, <laughs> then let's just shut down. That's <laughs> no, no, uh, but, 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 but this, this is actually the real issue worth um, exploring. And, and that is, okay, well, how, how do we construct a text like that? Um, so maybe let's turn to the construction of text in uh, manuscripts, really making papers that that hold for the audiences and the purposes that they have. Um, one word that I often explore on this um, podcast is the word story or narrative, which is which is oddly enough thrown around a lot in scientific circles, that and literature. I mean, people from the humanities would be surprised how much <laughs> these words are talked about. <laughs> Yeah, and, um, and I do think it's important to have a narrative, but I think often narrative is maybe not the best word. Because, of course, whenever you have a narrative flow to your story, uh, you want narratives are, they serve the purpose of evoking emotion. And that is not the goal of a scientific paper. Um, so, for example, if you build suspense and you're doing these things and you introduce experiments and then the big reveal is your conclusions, that's not really a great scientific paper because you want your conclusions to be obvious the whole time. You know, good writing fulfills our expectations. Um, and so for this reason, uh, I... I in, in my talks, whenever I talk about the flow of, of writing a paper, I contrast three things. And one of them is narrative flow. And I use a lot of very flashy language and hyperbole and, you know, big adjectives. And the other one is chronological, which is the order in which things happen, you know, the actual specific timeline of research. And the last one that I talk about is what I like to call logical flow, where you have a, a very rational step from one idea to the next. And between the three of these, by far the best for writing a scientific paper is this rational progression rather than a narrative progression through the paper. Those are really helpful terms to be working with. So the chronology, the storyline, the narrative, and then the logic. Um, I, I, it's been my experience that the chronology seems to be the dominant way in which a typical researcher, especially an early career researcher, will be thinking in, you know, they began here and, and ended up getting there. And that's what they want to tell. Well, of course, because uh, I think often this chronology is confused with rational flow in writing, because as scientists, whenever we follow our scientific paths, at every turn in our scientific path, we ourselves make a rational decision. You know, this experiment does make sense to run or it does not make sense to run it. This is why I chose to do it this way because it's more efficient. However, uh, the actual wiggles and wobbles of the chronology of how you finally got to your final result is not necessarily, not all of that needs to be in the paper. So you're really doing surgery whenever you're writing a paper and cutting out only the direct path that is the most important for bringing about your results. Yeah, and I think there's two small hurdles there for people who are new to the business of putting their science into words. And, and that is their notion of thoroughness or precision would be to include more than is necessary. And mm -hmm. their, let's say, yet limited experience as to picking out the significant points makes it hard for them to go through back through that chronology and really see what was the research goal what contributed to it, and everything else is secondary. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that this is something where planning in the beginning really helps. Because if you map out your entire paper and you finally get to your conclusion sections or even your abstract, because um, I actually think that for a lot of writers, writing the abstract is harder than writing either the introduction or the conclusion. 
um, my PI once told me that uh, lots of students, whenever they start out writing, instead of writing an abstract, they actually just rewrite the introduction. Um, and so whenever you're writing your abstract and you're really putting into 150 words what your story or what your research has done, uh, when you make that statement, what is necessary to support it? And that, and you'll often find that maybe a lot of the things in your results section maybe aren't necessary to support this statement. And maybe they can go into your method section or your supplementary information rather than the core of your manuscript. Because you can be thorough, right? We always have space for being thorough. You have an unlimited method section. You have an unlimited supplementary information. At Nature in particular, you also have 10 figures of extended data because we only allow four figures and the maybe up to five if it's a really long article uh, in the main text. So you will never have to sacrifice the um, details of your work. You just have to extract the main points for your actual paper. Yeah, that's really helpful to, to, to view that from a writer's perspective, as you were saying, a planning activity. Yeah, So really noting what it is that that statement is, as you say, that claim that it is that you want to make, what you think the findings actually are, and then everything that logically builds that story up we can use the story in that sense we might also just call it interpretation this is in my opinion a bit of a closer idea as to what's going on rather than narrative um, interpretation fits also nicely with logic as you were saying and everything else can either sure be pushed into a supplemental area or just be weighted differently to bring back that idea of waiting, weighted differently in the paragraphs and where it shows up and how much space is given to it in the paper itself. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe uh, a good word for this would be you are forming arguments because your statement that you are making is a rational conclusion and you use the rest of the paper to build your arguments to support that conclusion. Arguments is the perfect word. Yes, definitely. I mean, that's, uh, and that's also what is, I think, sometimes missed in the training that is given to scientists. I mean, we mentioned earlier on in the interview that, you know, the, let's say the thoroughness of the training and communication is certainly not given. It's more sporadic and here at class and there a workshop and so on. I'm not sure how much attention is given to that idea of building arguments and argumentation. I think one of the things that sort of jumps out at people in people's minds that, that that catches their attention when it comes to the communication is, well, it's in English, you know, so mm -hmm. they've got to be up to speed on the language. And it's my experience that most scientists are up enough to speed, right? What they need more is this understanding of how do I build an argument? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, the fundamental truth is that no reputable journal is going to reject your paper because of the strength of the English language. You know, we have staff for that. You know, there's plenty of services online that can help you with that. Oftentimes your coworkers can help you with that. Um, but really what makes the science blurry and muddled is just not having a well-supported conclusion and well-supported in terms of the argumentation and the rational evidence to support that conclusion even if all of your data is there. And this is why if you are somebody who's getting either training in communication as a researcher yourself or receiving help from someone else who knows more about communication and is able, maybe it's, you know, a fellow student as back in your day, Miranda, or it's actually mm -hmm. professional who's being brought in. I mean, these are really arguments why, um, well, I shouldn't use that word. These are reasons. <laughs> <laughs> these, these are reasons why that person who is there should also really be quite intimate with the institute or the project itself because if they're going to help you communication wise and not just fix a few sentences they're going to have to actually understand your purposes and what it is that you're doing 
exactly. And this is particularly important for science because as we all know, the devil is really in the details. Um, I remember it during my PhD agonizing on the meaning of a single word in a sentence for hours trying to figure out, you know, if the if this word means that the researchers did X or if it means they did Y or if that, if, you know, because these subtle changes in language can really alter the meaning of, of the text that you're presenting. So this more directed over that you were talking about is really important for aligning all of the text to serve that single purpose. So it's not just the English majors who turn words around all day. It's the scientists themselves, isn't it? Oh, of course. Um, well, uh, t to close out, Miranda, uh, one of the aims of this podcast overall, beyond just early career researchers, is um, to find ways to help the research get done better. So to be as transparent as possible. So that just concretely means let journals run more smoothly, let authors submit better manuscripts, have reviewers make more accurate judgments, and so on. The list is almost endless. Um, so if I gave you a platform for a moment to pick out one thing that you think could use improving and how that might be improved, what sort of springs to mind or from your own rich experience in this area as a researcher and an editor, what would be one thing that you would single out and say, hey, if we could just do this, then things would be running smoother? For, well, I think my, my answer is a little bit biased because I'm an editor, but for me, my number one gripe is cover letters okay. because um you know cover letters are a very important part of the scientific process it's something that you prepare to present your manuscript and uh, what they serve the purpose of is having a confidential discussion with your editor you know this is where you preface your work this is where you tell me about any sort of conflicts of interest or these sort of things that I should know before reading your paper. For example, especially at Nature, we get a lot of very timely and highly competitive and highly secretive research. And as I select peer reviewers, if you do not want me to send it to your direct competitor laboratory, you have to tell me in your cover letter because otherwise I won't know. Um, and a huge mistake that I I shouldn't call it a mistake, but a huge uh, missed opportunity that I see in a lot of cover letters is a lot of researchers simply copy and paste some version of the abstract or the introduction. And this this is not what this is for. You know, this is your opportunity to say in plain language why your work should be published in this journal and, you know, other details about the work that I need to know. Well, thank you very much for that, Miranda. That is Miranda Vinay. She is editor at Nature. This is goodbye from me to Miranda. Goodbye. Yes, thank you for having me. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.